This morning's reading is taken from 2 Samuel, chapter 12, and can be found on page 315 in the Pew Bibles, and hopefully on the screen. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had brought. He raised it, it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over, because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah, and if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had borne to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still living, he wouldn't listen to us when we spoke to him. How can we now tell him a child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed his attendants were whispering among themselves, and he realized that the child was dead. Is the child dead? he asked. Yes, they replied. He is dead. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request they served him food, and he ate. His attendants asked him, Why are you acting in this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. He answered, 
While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to Nahum Jedidiah. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Mary, for reading. So we just take a moment to, to pray. Father, thank you for your word. Um, we pray that by your spirit we'd receive it today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please keep your Bibles open at uh, page 315. And uh, I haven't got any fancy uh, introduction. We're going to get straight into it. Uh, it's a passage about God's amazing grace. And uh, the first um, part I want to first point really I want to say is um, what we see here is the skill uh, of God's grace. The skill of God's grace. What, um, verse 1, the Lord sent, Dave, sent Nathan to David. The Lord sent. Do you see that word sent? Now that word's interesting because if you go back into chapter 11, what you will find is um, the, the verb used 12 times when David um, uh, commits uh, adultery with Bathsheba and then murders Uriah, her husband. Uh, he sends for her. He sends for Uriah. He sends and sends and sends and does all this sending. And you can read about it in the previous chapter. Um, now, notice at the beginning of chapter 12, um, who is doing the sending now? The sending is the Lord. The Lord is doing he, the sending. He's taking the initiative here. Uh, and that's surprising since the, ch- the previous chapter ends with, but the things David had done displeased the Lord. So you might think, why does the Lord want to have anything to do? Um, with David, but of course David, but because the Lord is, is not giving up, is he? He doesn't just abandon um, David, because God is a God of grace. You know, imagine if the Lord left us, where if we were to fall in, and we do fall into sin, um, yet he doesn't. Uh, and so through Nathan, we see the skill of grace. Uh, and why do I use the word skill? I use the word skill because um, he, he tells this story. And there's a skill in that, actually. Why does David use a story? Um, well, remember, first of all, David was the king. And because he was the king, he sat in the, in the judgment seat over the nation. And so he would regularly hear out um, stories that were brought to him and he would have to make a, a judgment on it. So it's, no, it's not unusual um, that, that Nathan would bring this story to him. Um, he uses this approach, this story approach, I think, to not sound condemnatory. Um, if you think about it, you know what it's like when somebody blurts out or says anything to you straight you usually react very badly, don't you? I mean, you can imagine if, if Nathan had come to him and said, you know, 
you womanizer, you conniving murderer. He'd probably just take off, wouldn't he? Because it's a very blunt way um, to approach someone. Um, it tends to get people's hackles up, doesn't it? So notice we, we, we're given here, though, a story, an illustration. It's a skill to, to bring it home to David. And um, we're given a lot of detail about, we're not given very much detail about the rich man in the story. We're given quite a bit of detail about the, the poor man. He has a lamb who's deeply loves and cares for like his own. Um, he, he has a family. He has children. Um, verse 2. Um, but again, why, why a story? Well, we are so much better, aren't we, at seeing things outside of ourselves um, in others <laughs> to put it bluntly than we are at seeing ourselves we're really poor at seeing ourselves and seeing our own hearts uh, and our actions because the reality is we're all very inconsistent uh, we're blind to our wrongdoing and often we put sophisticated ways uh, around our actions to self-justify our actions. And that's what David is doing and has done. David can't see his situation. And so Nathan tells him a story to help him see it. And so um, David then feels very sorry for this, this uh, poor man. In fact, he, he, he feels outraged. He says in verse 5, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb uh, because he's, he's done a dreadful thing. And it's at that point, isn't it, where Nathan had him. And he says in verse 7, you are the man. Do you see it? You are the man. So he's kind of skill in that. There's a skill of grace in that. Um, he, he gently draws him in. It, you know, one of the, the most um, underrated, that's maybe not the right phrase, verses in the Bible, but is John 3.17. I love John 3.17. What does it say? It says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. You see, what we, we don't have a ministry of condemnation, do we? We don't have a ministry of condemnation. We have a ministry of salvation. Um, and uh, that's what Nathan is trying to do here. And of course, we should do the same. The grace of God is not only seen in the pronouncement of sins forgiven, it's seen also in the way that it's explained to David, gently, skillfully helping him to see what he has done. You are the man in the story. So that's the, the skill. Then secondly, there's the severity um, of grace. Now that might sound a bit weird, the severity of grace. Well, what's that about? Well, Nathan gives David his big speech um, about rehearsing God's grace that David has, has received. So he, he, if you look in verse, second half of seven, it, it goes, I 
anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if that, if this had been too little, I would have given you more. You see what David, you see what David was doing um, with Bathsheba and Uriah, Uriah's wife, don't you? You see what's happening. David is saying, in a sense, all that you have given me is not somehow enough. <laughs> and Nathan has to show, I gave you, I gave you, I gave you, I've given you, and I would have given you more. He rehearses God's grace. And in verse 9, we get the, the accusation. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his sight? But not only that, and that's big in itself, isn't it? But not only that, verse 9 continues, and it, you don't see it so much here in the English, but in the original Hebrew, um, the writer is emphasising the people's names and so when you read verse 9, it says, you struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You took his wife, Bathsheba. It's, it's hard to picture in, in, in the English languages. You killed him. And the point being is that you've not only despised the word of God, but you've messed up people's lives. And that's what sin does, doesn't it? It messes people's lives up. You destroyed them. And then in verses 10 and 11, there's the consequences that come because of that, and the consequences are through the sword and through sex, actually. It says in verse 10, the sword shall never depart from your house. Verse 11, out of your house, out of your house that's your offspring, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. And if you read through the rest of uh, to Samuel, you will find that things, this cloud hangs over David's house, things go wrong, his son then takes his own wife and it all becomes really messy and horrible. And the Lord has to bring this to him. You see, grace is not the same thing as niceness. It's not the same. Grace can be furious and can have consequences of actions. Um, sometimes it, it, it's needed, isn't it, to wake us up. Sin is never just sin. It has effects. It messes people's lives up. It destroys relationships. And we know that, don't we? We know in our own lives and, and people around us that we love. The, um, the, the, the hymn Amazing Grace that we will sing at the end, it says... This, and look out for it later. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. Do you see grace doing this, the two things there? Um, that's the severity of grace. So grace can be severe because it needs to show our hearts to fear. But then there is, thirdly, the success of grace. The success of grace. And we see this so wonderfully in verse 13. We read of David's confession. What does he say? His confession. I have sinned against the Lord. It's very brief. It's only two words in the original language. Um, you can read in Psalm 51, a kind of longer, more reflective, probably looking back 
um, confession. And then David, uh, and then Nathan, sorry, announces forgiveness. He says, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. So he announces forgiveness. Um, that the Lord does away, the Lord is doing away with the death penalty, because that is actually what it says in Leviticus 20 for his actions, and Deuteronomy 22. That's what, that's what should have, in a sense, by, by the law's demand, require for his crimes. But this is the success of God's grace. David confesses his guilt. Now, we might be tempted to think, this was all a bit brief, his confession is that, for I have sinned. <laughs> That's basically all he says. Um, where's the long statement to the press? You know, with uh, uh, apologising to this, that, and everybody, to friends, family. All he says is, the Lord has taken away your sin. Is that it, David? Is that all there is? But I suppose if we think about it, that very um, uh, often the verse we use when we do confession in 1 John 1, you know, um, does it say, when, when we read 1 John 1, say, does it say if we confess our sins, if we grovel and wail and self flagellate, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins? Doesn't say that, does it? No, you don't have to wallow in self-pity and despair as if that was somehow going to atone for your sins. We simply need to confess our need to admit, hold up our hands, for our wrongdoing. It simply says in 1 John, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins. End of. As the Americans say, period. So if you're American. <laughs> I think that's how they do it. The atonement is taken away by the Lord. Do you see that in, in the text? He has taken it away. Your sins have been taken away. How's, how has the Lord done that? You've got to ask yourself that question, haven't you? How has he done that? You see, it's not the intensity of our sorrow that brings forgiveness, okay? It's not somehow we've got to work that up. It's confession. It's just saying it, being honest before the Lord, that, and that leads to forgiveness. The brevity of David's confession, I think, also points to his sincerity in it. Um, you see, there's, there's no sort of ifs and buts, is there, in his confession here, um, that we might, you know, sometimes we might say, well, it was, it was my genes that caused it, you know, my genetics, my makeup. Um, it, 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 it was my upbringing. That's why I did what I did. Or it was my mental state of mind at the time. I was under a lot of pressure at the time. There's no searching for those kind of loopholes, is there? No human weakness pleaded. It's just simply a confession, I did it. Um, David openly and candidly, without provocating, owns up, I have sinned against the law. There's, there's no, well, you know, she shouldn't have been on the rooftop, <laughs> you know, bathing naked. It's her fault. There's none of that. I have sinned. It was me. Or uh, it's uh, rather like that great modern poet, Taylor Swift. 
Uh, you're all familiar with Taylor Swift. Uh, in her song, Anti-Hero, she says, Hi, it's me. I'm the problem. It's me. She's got it. David's brevity points to sincerity. It's me. I'm the problem. It's me. I've sinned against the Lord. How candid are you before the Lord? Only you can answer that. How candid are you? I don't know. Um, You can answer that question. Um, What do we learn um, by the the death of this um, child? Notice David doesn't die. But verse 14, somebody else dies. The child dies. The Lord counsels the guilt of David, but it doesn't necessarily counsel the consequences of all that happens. Um, We are forgiven sinners, yet we have to recognise that there are consequences to the actions that are forgiven. Um, And therefore, how how can we be assured that we're not going to die? That's an important question. How can you be assured that your sins are forgiven this morning? How can you be sure that you know his pardon? Well, um, Eugene Peterson said, uh, he, he wrote the message uh, translation of the Bible, some of you are familiar with that. He said, there's a remarkable similarity here between the story of, uh, uh, of Jesus Christ before Pilate and, and the story of, of David here. Um, Nathan says to David, you are the man, doesn't he? If you go to John 19, verse 5, I think it is, where Jesus is before Pilate, what does Pilate say of Jesus? He says, here is the man. Okay? You've got one is, this is the man. The other is, here is the man. Two courtrooms, aren't they? Pilate was was a judge. Two courtrooms, one in 2 Samuel 12, one in John 19. The courtroom of David and the courtroom of Pilate, both are upside down courts. 2 Samuel 12, the man who is in the judgment seat, he's the king, remember David, should be in the dock, shouldn't he? He should be accused. In Pilate's courtroom, the man in the dock, accused and condemned, would be on the judgment seat because <laughs> he created the world. He sustained all things. God sends a prophet, doesn't he, to sort out the first situation. It comes in Nathan, you are the man. And suddenly the one who is on the judgment seat is then in the dark and accused and confessing. But in Pilate's courtroom, who shows up? No one shows up, do they? No one shows up. No one's there to to set things right. No prophet shows up to say what should have really been said, which is, Pilate, you are the man. And, And Pharisees, you are the men. Didn't happen, did it? Because on the cross, no one shows up. And instead, Jesus dies for us, to forgive us, to make atonement for sin. 
the judge of all, who has the right to judge us all, who flung stars into space, who created the world, who sustains us, our every breath, who did nothing wrong except give of himself. He dies and is condemned for us in our place. Here is the man, Jesus Christ, atoning for your sins and my sins. That is wonderful grace right there. That is grace. So that we Davids, you and me, when we confess can receive forgiveness of sins. Jesus was condemned in our place. He died so we can live. He stood in the dock where David and us deserve to be. And he did that because of the success of God's grace to us. Isn't that wonderful good news? It's brilliant. You and I don't have to atone for our sins. Jesus has found a way. The Lord has taken it away. Jesus has done it for you and for me. When we confess, you've, you're not earning your salvation when you confess. Jesus earned it for you. He died so you could live. That is grace. That's the success of grace. It's wonderful good news. And then finally, just to end with, there is the David's sense of grace. There's the sense of grace. What do I mean by that? It's, well, it's in there in what happens next. David's action. He pleads with God for the child. Um, did you notice that? Um, he fasted, he spent nights in sackcloth, and then eventually the, the, the child dies. And David stops. Um, the, that, the David's palace uh, entourage, his staff, um, they don't get it. They can't quite understand the before and the after. And in verse 21, um, they ask, why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now the child is dead, you get up and eat. The staff think it's all the, the wrong way around, don't they? They, they don't kind of get it. As soon as the child dies, David gets up. What does he do? It tells us in the text, he, he goes off and he goes to the temple and he, he worships. He, he then also prepares, he has food prepared for him and he carries on um, life and they just can't fathom what's going on. It sort of baffles them. What was this guy doing? Surely he should be mourning now that the child has died. And the explanation is there in the text. It comes in verse 22. While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now he is dead. Why should I go on fasting? Can I bring back again him back? I will go to him he will not return to me. Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me. That's the, that's, the, that's the sense that David has of God's grace. He senses that God may change his mind. Do you see that? He senses it. Who knows? I think there's a verse that should be written on our hearts and in our lives, um, as it will be a fuel for our prayers and for our intercession. Um, David thought that the sentence on the child might not be the last word because he has a sense of just how gracious the Lord is. Um, I'm not, it's, it's always a bit... You've got to be careful sometimes with that statement about whether, you know, and there, because, because you can take that too far. 
But, you know, there are places in, in, in the Bible where, it, where we see that. Exodus 32 is a, a very good example. You remember the golden calf uh, and uh, the Lord, what does he do when, he come, when they come back off the hill and he sees the calf? What does he say? He says he's going to destroy them. Destroy the people of God. I don't want to have any more. Look at how terrible they are. I'm going to clear off and get out of here. But Moses intercedes for, uh, on, on their behalf. And, and he's, he does the same thing. He's, he knows what God is like, that there's a sense of God's grace in him. Just maybe this isn't the last word. Who knows? He may be gracious to us. Do you see how David's sense of God's grace as well here? See, David's assumption is that God is gracious. Is that your assumption? God, grace is God's inclination. He is, what does it say in the Bible over and over again? It says he's compassionate and gracious and slow to anger. Doesn't mean to say he doesn't get angry, but he's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. And, and David knew it. He knew it probably more than most. And so with, with a God like that, you, you just, who knows? What he might do, how he might change his mind. Who can imagine just how gracious he might be? I don't know. He is a God of grace. In all the mess and the sin and, and everything, God is, seeks to be gracious. For David's grace is not kind of this sort of abstract thing, that the abstract doctrine. It's, it's actually the peculiar bent of the Lord. It's his, what he's like. Um, who knows? And so uh, this morning, do you have that sense of God's grace in your life? Um, do you have that feel for God's sheer abundant grace? What's your reflex thinking of God's? Sometimes our reflex thinking about God is that he probably doesn't don't want to bother him. Maybe he won't really want to know. Maybe he doesn't really care, you know. But it's not like, that's not what God is like. He wants to be gracious. Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me. That doesn't mean that God changed his mind. He didn't hear. There may be millions of reasons why in God's sovereign will he didn't. It may be that God in his grace and his promises wants to do things differently and in surprising ways that you can't possibly fathom or see at the moment. And, and, and I think that is true here, isn't it? Because what happens in verse, right at the end of our reading is they conceive and give birth to Solomon. And so the line of David continues and eventually to Jesus. So there we are, the sense of God's grace, despite all the sin and mess it causes in our lives. God is gracious. He operates within it. And let us, let the Holy Spirit take this word and, and pound our hearts with it and sense God's grace for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us, your abundant grace. Thank you for the skill of grace. That You don't seek to condemn, you seek to save. We thank you that sometimes we need your severity of grace to, to show us the seriousness of our sin. And we thank you for the success of grace that when we confess you are faithful and just and you forgive us our, our sins. 
May we know this grace in our lives today and tomorrow and forever, wherever we are in our relationships, in our work, in our quiet times. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.